Can you hear me, Nikki? Looks like you're still unmuted. Now it's on mute. But can you hear I can hear you. Oh, now Wonderful. you can. Okay. Wonderful. We're getting better at it. Yes, slowly. <laughs> I left us a full 10 minutes to figure it all out, but we did it in under, what, three minutes. So that's awesome. That's good. <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. Yes. Thank you for being so patient. Well, I just, I'm so proud of us that we've had the courage and the faith to move forward and know that we could do it and just be confident. This stuff is not easy. Well, no. And, you know, there's a wonderful saying by Charles Spurgeon, who is a wonderful minister in England in the late 1800s. And he said, the snail, by perseverance, finally reached the ark. And I'm always thinking I'm a good snail and I'll get snail. through the ark. <laughs> I love that. Slow and steady. We muster forward. Well, there's no reason for us to wait six more minutes. So you want to just dive in? If you're ready, I'm ready. Okay. I'm just going to say a quick prayer and then we'll, we'll, I'll do the music. Okay. All right. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that the technology is working, that we're able to connect, and that we're creating this wonderful show for those who are curious and want to understand the history of what's happened with math education. We would invite thy spirit to be with us as we speak, that we might share something that will touch the hearts of those who will listen. We're so grateful for Nikki and for her determination to capture John's story and the history of the math wars. Please bless her and her personal life and her professional life as she goes forward. And bless us both that we will have the determination to finish this project and offer it up to anyone who chances by. We're so thankful for our Savior Jesus Christ and would ask that his spirit might pour down upon our nation and all the nations of the earth with perfect peace and harmony and love. And as we seek to expose so much that is wrong in our culture and in our society, we would ask that those who are wise might have eyes to see and ears to listen and that they will be able to act in ways that will quickly transform things to a better place for our students and all of our people. And we say these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Here's my intro. This is the John Saxon Story Podcast. I am your host, Jenny Hatch, with my co-host, Nikki Hayes. And today we are going to be covering Chapter 2 in John Saxon's Story, a biography written by Nikki Hayes. And before we begin, Nikki, I would like to just capture it on audio 
that you gave me permission to share the text of each chapter on my Substack along with the audio and video files. Absolutely. Okay, I don't want there to be any question about that. When I first contacted Nikki a couple of months ago, my goal was to encourage her to put her book on Kindle so that a digital version of the book would be available for everyone. I work for the National Activist Group FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, and I'm the Boulder chapter leader for this organization, and it's one of the most dynamic and exciting groups of activists I've ever worked with. I've been an education activist for 30 years, worked diligently with Utahns Against Common Core for a couple of years. And this fair group is really powerful. And I wanted to introduce them to the ideas that Nikki shares in her book, but I couldn't even find my hard copy of, of her book, which is in a box somewhere in my shed. I, I tried twice to find it and I couldn't find it. So I was like, I'll just go buy a copy of it on Kindle. And I was dismayed to see that there was no digital copy because I wanted to share the book with, with my fellow travelers at fair and in other places. And so that's where I came up with the idea to contact her and convince her to share the book on Kindle, which is in the works. But then I also thought, you know, wouldn't it be powerful to have Nikki herself read the book and capture that in podcast form? And I was just thrilled when she said, yes, let's do it. And so as we read this book, that was the starting point. And before we begin chapter two, Nikki's going to share a couple of stories with us about the purchase of the Saxon Math Textbook Company by these math conglomerates. So Nikki, take it away. Okay, thank you. I made some notes so I wouldn't mess up here because I didn't want to forget anything. Um, There's some years that we need to kind of keep in mind as I talk. John died in 1996, and the third editions of his Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 books came out in 1997. And I always really push for people not to buy anything past the third editions because there are fourth editions out by the new compu- the new companies and their Common Core. So don't ever go past the third editions of 1997. Um, The company was sold in 2004 because the family just could not run the company the way John had because they were doctors and pharmacists and families and they just couldn't do it. So they sold to a company called Harcourt Brace or Harcourt Achieve, I'm sorry. And they came in saying that they were going to write new textbooks. Well, they couldn't do anything with John's books because they were copyrighted. So they could still create new books under the Saxon name after they bought the company. And uh, Stephen Hake, who was a long time and original author with John for grades four through eight, kept his copyright so they couldn't mess with his books. So they didn't do anything until uh, after they sold their company to Houghton Mifflin in 2007. 
and it became known as Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2007. And so the bottom line was that they were still having to use John Saxon's books and Stephen Hake's books. So they came out with a, uh, Houghton Mifflin came out with a geometry book in 2009. And I need to insert here that John was really insistent in not having a separate geometry book because he said his philosophy was that schools had used Algebra 1 for like in the ninth grade and then they made kids take geometry in the 10th grade and then they took Algebra 2 in their junior year. And he said, when you split Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 with geometry, the kids didn't remember the algebra they needed to know to start out in Algebra 2. And schools use that as a wedge to say, oh, those kids aren't any good in math. And so they did not encourage those students to go on and take more math. So he integrated geometry into his Algebra 1, Algebra 2, and advanced math textbooks so that the students got geometry, but it was in a way that they wouldn't forget their algebra. So I wanted to get that really important point that if people buy the geometry book from Houghton Mifflin now, it is not John Saxon's material. And then Houghton Mifflin came out with algebra, their Algebra 1 and 2 in 2011. Remember that Common Core came on the scene in 2010. And so these books have Common Core in them, the fourth edition. So we wonder why a company would buy John Saxon's company when they hated him so much, but the assumption was they could sail in under the Saxon name and put their own material in the Saxon program. Fortunately, an awful lot of people have caught on to what's going on and they have insisted on buying the second, the third editions of the algebra books and the other books that were published before 2007. Um, I wanted to quote some up, and the Houghton president was uh, chastising a couple of teachers in Connecticut for coming up with an algebra program online. And she pointed out that at Houghton Mifflin, they use hundreds of math specialists and do field tests in schools, which would like for them to show me any field tests they've ever run. But they use hundreds of math specialists because it's impossible for one person to be able to write a math book, such as John Saxon. And she belittled Saxon because he was one author, which is what they've done for 40 years now. The thing is, what they don't understand, Nikki, what John said. Nikki, could you, yes. could you clarify that again? There was a little bit of fuzziness at the beginning. Tell me the name of the Harcourt person. And are you saying that they did not believe it was possible for one person to write a textbook and you had to have a committee? Is, is that your point? Yes, that's what she said, and and that's in my book. She she made that point very clear somewhere at some point because I've got it documented and, in my book. What's her name again? All I know is she was the vice president at the time of Houghton Mifflin, and uh, one of the vice presidents. 
And so this was probably in, I would say, 2008, somewhere in there. And the bottom line was that one of their reasons for belittling John Saxon as an author was it's not possible for a person to write a textbook by himself as one person, a math textbook. And John's retort, which is hilarious, I think, he said, you know, if they're not willing to put their name on the front of the book, then they're not willing to stand up for what's inside the book. And so they bury their names as a group inside the book without putting their own ownership on it. So then they don't have to be held accountable for what happens with the book's material. Now, doesn't that make sense? If you're not willing to put your name on the front of the book, which a lot of authors did in the old days, then you're hiding your material inside a book, a long list of contributors. And those of us who've worked in Saxon math called it a a chop shop, that these people would contribute materials to a group of writers who would then put it together into the books. And so John always had a retort to come back on the idea that he did not have the smarts or the ability to write a book on his own. Well, and what you're seeing today is all of these math books that are fully colorized, have tons of photos of children, and half the textbook is just graphics and um, yes. politically correct thinking. And the math is sort of like lost in the shuffle of all of that madness. So. Well, and, and there's no theme. I mean, when you think about it, let me give you an example. The Navajo kids in Arizona who who adored John Saxon, the, the school that used it, because they felt like they knew him. They knew the book. They knew how the words were going to go. They knew how the nuance was going to go with, with all of the the sincerity in the writing. And so they didn't have to adjust to a new form in the next chapter in the book. Of course, John doesn't have chapters in his books. He just has lessons because he says when they teach by chapter, it's hunk learning. They have to swallow a chapter. You go to the next chapter. And if you don't know what was in the first one, you can't do the next one. So his method of anybody who knows Saxon at all is the constant repetition of materials all the way through the book. So kids get the practice they need. But the point being that the idea that you can just throw hundreds of people together to write books and come out with the cleanness that you need. Harcourt, um, Houghton Mifflin also published an algebra for McDougal, and it was a thousand pages. You're breaking up, Nikki. Sorry. It's okay. Just go back to Harcourt what? The when Houghton Mifflin, I'm sorry, Houghton Mifflin published a book for McDougal Little, an algebra book, and it was a thousand pages. Now a teacher had 185 days each a book, and to give them a book of a thousand pages, why? That and I, I've seen that with other books too, 
where a first grade book two years ago in the Catholic school where I tutor, a first grade book had 741 pages for a first grade teacher to teach the students. So when you say you've got hundreds of people, math specialists creating the books, that doesn't bode well for the results. But anyway, I'm sorry, I'm off track. But this is the kind of people who bought the Saxon product thinking they were going to ride the name, the bat of the name, in order to make money and then change all the guts on the inside of the new books and not have it really be Saxon anymore. Not too smart. Um, I want to share also one thing. When I retired in 1990, when I retired in 2006 in Seattle, and moved back to Texas, someone with Saxon learned of me and called and asked if I would learn, like to be a sales representative in Texas for Saxon. Now, this was in 2006. So I went to a meeting in Dallas for all of these potential sales representatives. And the person in charge of the meeting, for who uh, at that time it was Harcourt, said, quote, the only thing that's wrong with Saxon books is John Saxon. Therefore, our job is to sell Saxon books and never talk about him. I was stunned. I was and stunned. And tell me, tell me again what year you wrote your book. Was this before or after you'd written your book? I wrote my book in 2010. I published it in 2010. So this was in 2006 that this was said at a meeting and I had no clue that Harcourt was in this kind of attitude. They had bought the company in 2004. I retired in 2006, went to this meeting in October of 2006, and heard this lady from Harcourt make that statement. And I was talking later with them about my philosophy of John Saxon. And she said, you are never to speak his name again. And I said, I quit. I'm not, yeah. uh-uh, I'm not here. And I left. So what I experienced is not unusual. Many people who have been supporters of Saxon math and had to fight for it at state levels have heard those same kinds of words. So that was in 2006. Then Hoot and Mifflin bought the company in 2007 and started publishing their own forms of books under Saxon. People need to be aware that anything that was published after 2007 is not Saxon. They may have the name, but it's not Saxon. And now we're hearing that they are shutting down Saxon publishing next year. They're going to phase hope, it out. Yeah, they, they won't even be selling the books through Hoot and Mifflin. And you told me you were going to contact Stephen Hake to find yeah. out the status of his middle school books. Did he respond to you? Uh, Stephen is on the road and he said, as soon as he gets home, he will respond and let me know. Good. Well, I'll be anxious to hear what he says because he still owns the copyright on all of his textbooks, correct? Right. Exactly. And so, you know, my hope is there's, Stephen um, has a really good business in California and selling his books and so forth. But I'm hoping there's some way 
that God intervenes and helps Stephen save Saxon. I do too. And I, I'm hoping for a miracle. I'm actually planning for a miracle because I think there are enough people of goodwill who are waking up to exactly what's happened with all of the fraud and all of the uh, remediation baked into the product that there are many people who are ready for some change. And so I'm looking forward to all of a sudden things flipping and the best curriculum being available for the most number of students all over the country and really all over the world. There is no reason why we cannot expose all of the fraud that's taken place and even perhaps hold some people accountable for their many lies, distortions, uh, bad faith collaborations, money grubbing at the expense of children. And I look forward to it flipping rather quickly. And so um, that's the miracle I'm praying for and hoping for. And I hope anybody who's listening will join me in that prayer. This chapter two of John Saxon's story tells the story of his time as a soldier, which is actually a funny chapter. Chapter two is titled A Three Crash Lieutenant. And it was John age 20. And it's it was a lovely time to be alive. So let's dig in with this chapter. Nikki, would you read that first paragraph? Sure. It was 1943, and John was still less than an average student at the University of Georgia. With America entering World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, John wanted to avoid the draft because he wanted some say on how he would serve. He learned he could join the enlisted reserve, so that's what he did. Soon afterward, he went to Atlanta with his father on a business trip, and, saw, and John saw a sign in a storefront window that said, We want you, in capital letters, and you can wear silver wings. He went inside and told them he was already in the enlisted reserves. They said he would need to take the mental and physical exams, and that the mental exam was starting in 15 minutes. The physical would be that afternoon. John got his father's approval to take the exams, which he passed. This meant he would be called up in some branch for aviation cadets. John said later that he had actually given little thought to the consequences of becoming a pilot. I just happened to see that sign. He got called up in April 1943. He jumped on the troop train to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, and said later that Mimi and Daddy recalled how happy he was because he was going off to a great adventure. They, however, were not happy. After all, he was their only son. That didn't register with John at the time. No. When the troops got to Keesler, they were lined up and marched into huts. Learning to drill in sand that was about six inches deep proved to be less fun than he had expected and not a great adventure, especially in May when it was hot and humid. In fact, it was awful. But we learned if we crawled under the huts and dug down in the sand, we could find coolness for some relief. Basic training lasted for a month, 
and then 4,000 to 5,000 cadets were sent one night to Knoxville, Tennessee. There were too many cadets for the trainers, John said, so the overflow was sent to classes to learn physics and science courses. No one would study, he said. While they were on guard duty, a woman who was sort of like the Red Cross drove up and asked how she could help the boys. They wanted dates. Instead, she came back in a big black Cadillac, picked up five of them and took them to a golf course on the river. She paid for everything, he remembered. The boys did end up dating some girls from the University of Tennessee. Quote, it was a lovely time to be alive, close quote, said John. We were going off to war and none of us would get killed. One night, some of the Georgia boys decided they wanted to go to Athens, Georgia. So after Reveille, they went AWOL and drove in a convertible to that city. Then they drove all night to get back for morning Reveille. From Knoxville, he was sent to Nashville, where everyone was given tests to classify each man as pilot, bombardier, or navigator. Of 300 being tested, only 20 didn't want to be a pilot. The psychiatrist asked him if he was afraid of anything. Yes, I'm afraid of being washed out of the program before I learn how to fly. John was classified as a pilot. From there, he went to Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama for training. He spent a lot of time drilling, shining shoes, and killing time. Another troop train arrived in December 1903 to take Avon Porta. He remembers this as the Alabama winter recalls them all have muddy and take them off before getting on the train. We got on wearing our socks, he said. He shook his head and said, it's amazing how well I remember things way back when. During the trip to Florida, John happened to see a water tower that said, Frostproof, Florida. This one small attention to signs turned out to be an important one for him later. At Avon Park, the troops went to ground school half the day and flew the other half, six days a week. There was a lake we could swim in. It was great. And you can't believe how wonderful it was to have all the milk and food we wanted. We hadn't got much food at Maxwell, and girls waited on us. We got $21 a month. Hamburgers were 10 cents, and cigarettes were 15 cents a pack. <laughs> I wanted to interject here, Jenny, that uh, at the head of this top of this story, uh, this chapter, it says because of serious health issues with two quadruple bypass heart surgeries, John was encouraged by his children to record his personal history on video cassette tapes. The first one was in 1987, and that's where I got all the information for this chapter. So it was just directly from his his mouth yes. on a video. Absolutely. Absolutely. Their airplanes had open cockpits and they had to strap themselves in to keep from falling out if the plane flew upside down. (laughs) Quote, we had leather helmets, goggles and white silk scarves, and we put lard on our noses to prevent sunburning. Because of the open cockpit with the instructor sitting in the front seat, John said the airplane never took off, quote, straight, 
close quote. It always taxied in an S-curve. John's instructor never could understand why. He wouldn't step on the right rudder as hard as he needed to. But John said he was afraid he would break it. The instructor would yell, right rudder, right rudder. I'm going to wash you out if you don't push in that right rudder. It took 10 takeoffs before he did it right. John admitted the instructor was patient with him. He also realized later that he was trying to memorize what to do rather than just doing it. Later on, John did hit the wrong rudder and ran the plane off the runway into the motor pool. When he was asked what happened, he said, I had a tail shimmy. He didn't, but the war was on, so they overlooked it. The cadets learned to do stalls and spins and how to recover. Finally, solos came after eight or ten hours of flying time. His instructor had said, go up and shoot three landings and don't kill yourself. John was so excited that he would finally be in the air by himself. He was having so much fun. Then he started coming down for the landing and realized the instructor wasn't with him. I was scared to death, but somehow I got it landed. On his second run, he was 400 feet above the ground instead of being on the ground where he was supposed to be. So he went around again. His instructor later demanded to know what he was doing by flying in jumps instead of smooth glides up and down. John didn't say how he answered the instructor, but it must have worked because he got thrown in the lake as a reward for soloing. (laughs) It was spring 1944 in Florida with nice warm weather. It was a wonderful life. We were being taught to fly airplanes to fight Germans and Japanese. One day he decided to see how high his airplane would go. He kept climbing 50 feet a minute, and when he reached 9,250 feet, the airplane started shaking. He was above the clouds, and when he came down, he couldn't see the airfield. Then he saw a water tower with the name Frostproof, first seen on his train ride to Florida. He followed the railroad tracks to Avon Park and made it back within his 30-minute allotted time frame. From there, the cadets were secretly taken to a new destination, Cochrane Field in Macon, Georgia, to learn to fly the B-13, B-15. I thought it was really, he says, with embarrassment and bring his face with his hands as he begins this. To take up the B-15, he joked to the instructor, I could fly the crate it came in. I'll try to bring it back in one piece. He had been watching the big boys, instructors who were hot shots and would land with the tail wheel down first. Shooting his third landing, he pulled back on the stick and the airplane went up in the air. It started shimmying and he crashed. The flight commander came out in another airplane to get him. Furious, he said John had made him look bad. He screamed at me the whole way back. 90 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour. I was close with 85 to 87 miles per hour, so I didn't see any big deal. He was again threatened with being washed out of cadet training, and this time the instructor did actually fail him. But, as John tells it, this is an example of my luck. In the fall of 43 and spring of 44, the Germans were shooting our butts off 
Washington, D.C. sent word out, if they can breathe, do not wash out anybody. So John was sent to the major for a ride to see if he indeed should be washed out. God, I was ground shy when I was trying to land, he said. But because the guy ahead of him had been washed out, the major sent John back to the flight line and said, the boy can fly. He just can't land it. Teach him how to land it. During one such training exercise, John recounts a story that he later published in a full-page advertisement in Mathematics Teacher Magazine called Terror at 3,000 Feet. In that incident, the instructor was yelling, Think! 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 John said he was thinking, but it was, I don't know what to think. Lord, tell me what to think. Describing that incident, he said his training required lots of physical movement with feet and hands, not like today. We had no radios in that airplane. A different rudder was used on the ground than the one used in the air. It required real memorization and practice. They reached the ground during the eventful flight, but John says he learned a lesson that he used when he trained pilots in later years. This terrible experience made me teach my own flyer students that they should tell me what they needed to do rather than yelling at them without any helpful directions. This, by the way, was a flight in which he didn't have his seatbelt fastened. If they had turned upside down, he said he would have fallen from the <laughs> airplane. <laughs> Go ahead. This same instructor later told John when he was soloing, if you have an accident, have a big one and kill yourself so I won't have an investigation on me. John was so excited he forgot to fasten his seatbelt again. If I had flown upside down, I'd fallen out. John shot his landings and had to redo some of his flight work, but he finally got through this basic training. His instructor was, quote, mean as hell, unquote, but John said he got me through it. Now he got to choose whether he wanted further training in a single or twin-engine airplane. He chose twin-engine mainly because he didn't think they would give him a single engine. Later, I was at an AT-10 plane, he says with a deep breath, and I can't believe this, but I thought the pilot was dangerous, so I was going to help him, and I put on the brakes. We rolled upside down on the runway. Gasoline was coming out of the gas cap. We turned off the switches, but that didn't matter because the engines were hot as firecrackers. The, fi the pilot was 5 feet 6 inches, and he got out. John, who was now 5 feet 10 inches, was trapped. They were about three quarters of a mile from the flight line, so it took about four minutes for anyone to get to them. Had it caught on fire, I would have been burned to a crisp. He was screaming for someone to get him out of there, but they wanted to foam down everything first. It stank, but I was glad for that nasty smell. He didn't know how they got him out of that airplane except they had to break through the fuselage. Bishop's this was John's book. Sorry? You want to read that next one? Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. This one's John's ahead, third airplane, 
I'm at, uh, this was John's third airplane accident. Hmm. I'm at, but here he interrupts his story to tell about a special highlight that seemed very important to him during that time period. Mimi had come to yeah. a peach orchard. There's just two, on mine, there's just two sentences before that where you start, so. Oh, okay, go ahead, because that, that's this, not in my book. This was John's third airplane accident. He was assigned another instructor, but here he interrupts his story to tell about a special highlight during that time period. Mimi had come to a peach orchard near the field and brought jugs of buttermilk and a whole basket of tomato sandwiches for the men on the night flight practice. That had clearly left an indelible memory in John's mind. And just insertion here, Nikki, there are a few words here and there that are different uh, from what you're reading. And hmm. I, I just grabbed the text from the, the PDF that you sent me. Oh, okay, okay. Huh, but that's strange, because the PDF is what they printed the book for. All right, so you and I are gonna have some little editing to try to figure out. Yes. Okay. Where did you stop? I'm sorry. Uh, the About the peach story clearly left a memory. The next sentence is the cadets were now sent. Yeah. The cadets were sent to interviews to determine if they would be named second lieutenants or warrant officers. We didn't like the interviewer, he said. The guy was asking what we thought about the role of leadership. And I said I didn't believe that people could be driven, that they should be led. He didn't like that answer. Then something clicked in the back of John's mind about playing along with the guy. He said, in reference to the interviewer's new comments, I never thought about it that way. You're totally right. John admitted it was a straight con job, and he was lying from the word go. It worked. He was named a second lieutenant. A fellow cadet had stood down a tactical officer at an early time in their training and told him why he was wrong. John said the cadet, that cadet couldn't understand why he didn't make second lieutenant. Further, the cadet had turned on John and chewed him out for buggering three airplanes and still making second lieutenant. At this point in the story, John said that the fellows fussing at him were overshadowed by the fact that Mimi, Daddy, and his sister were coming to his graduation. From Cochrane Field, John was sent to Sebring, Florida for B-17 training. They had combat returnees as instructors, and these guys never told one horror story about their wartime experiences. They didn't tell that one crew in 20 came back alive. None even hinted that he and the others were going to die. It was unbelievable the way they played the game. The war wasn't found in the newspapers. You didn't talk about dead soldiers until parents got a notice and a gold star was put in the window. A gold star was for the mother who had given her son for our country. John and his crew figured they weren't slackers, so that meant they wouldn't get killed. He looked at those B-17s and said, you cannot imagine how big they looked. Now, today, a B-17 can fit under one wing of a DC-10. The B-17E and B-17F were two of four models. The B-17G had a nose turret hung on the front of it because 
because other B-17s had no fire gun protection. John decided flying formations was fun, but confesses he was just adequate in getting the B-17 off the ground and back down. John then interjected a particular incident that he still found humorous 45 years later. It was about his wisdom teeth. We took our overseas physical and they pulled our teeth because they didn't want us to get shot down with bad wisdom teeth. I guess that was the reason. Nobody really knew. He returned John, to Avon. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Right. Well, my, my book says he returned to Avon Park Army Airfield in Florida and was assigned a flight crew. This was, in fact, the combat crew replacement center. They started flying practice combat missions with more instrument training, which involved flying over Everglades with gunnery had been set up. During one particular run, John could hear the 50 caliber guns being fired from within the airplane. He learned it was his crew shooting at white herons. Another learning moment was when he realized he hadn't used much sense by not giving his co-pilot more airtime. Giving him control of the airplane, John said, when they got to 3,000 feet, he asked, where's the field? His co-pilot didn't know. We were over central Florida, lost. They decided to turn on all the searchlights and thought that might help. It didn't. It was bad, said John. Then someone finally saw the lights of Avon Park on the field, and they headed home. It was August 1944, and I had wised up enough, just enough, to know I was going to have to know something to make a living. He got a call from his father, asking if he'd like to go to West Point. It seems his uncle was having lunch in Washington, D.C., restaurant, and a Georgia congressman who had just been defeated asked if he knew anybody who wanted an appointment to the military academy. He had one opening left to give away. John's uncle thought he might be a good candidate and told his father about the offer. John asked his father when it began and was told June 30th, 1945. John, fig John figured two things. One, if he went back to the University of Georgia, he would do nothing but drink beer and cut classes. Two, he could still fly a mission overseas and be back in time to go to West Point. He didn't know anything about West Point, but he knew it was a big deal. He thought maybe West Point would make him, quote, do something, unquote. A new situation developed with this new offer that would be one of many strokes of good fortune in his life. He would have to make a wrenching decision, however. John's father called to say he would have to take an exam for admission to the academy in March of 1945. John's unit probably wouldn't ship out until February. That meant he wouldn't have time to fly his 25 missions and get back in time to take the exam. For once in my life, I made the right decision, he said. He resigned his commission immediately so a new pilot could be assigned his crew and this would give them practice runs together. Then he adds, almost softly, but I got to fly in Korea and Vietnam and prove I wasn't a coward. 
He later learned his crew got in 14 missions, all milk runs or easy flights, with little or no danger before the end of the war. That's the end of the chapter. Do you have any final words, Nikki? I don't think so. Um, I'm glad we saw these little bubbles that we need to look at, that I need to look at. So reading this information is helpful in more ways than one. It is. It's so good to actually go back and see what you wrote. So often I'll go back and read one of the books I wrote in the early 2000s. I'm like, oh, I was such a good writer. (laughs) (laughs) Who who knew? That's funny. You know, it strikes me, you know, this is something I'd read in a book that somebody wrote. Oh, I wrote that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, so funny how you can forget your own words, you know? Well, and I haven't read all of this book for maybe five years. So reading it now, I'm going, oh, yeah. Okay. I remember that. Oh, okay. That was good. Yep. I know. It's fun. Well, thank you so much. I'll close down the show. We will resume this podcast next sunday 12 noon and you can look for the video version of it and another audio version of it on my Substack at healthyfamilies.substack.com this week with this third episode the rss feed will go to spotify and apple podcast and amazon itunes music so you will be able to find this podcast wherever podcasts are found on the internet. And we look forward to hearing from you in the comment section here on Colin or on my Substack, or if you'd like to email us, we would love to hear your feedback on this series. We're so excited about it. Nikki Hayes, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jenny, for offering it. I'm so grateful. I will say goodbye with this little jingle for my show. And thank you again for listening.